Okay, we're now going to be having our main Bible reading, which is from Romans 12. If it's helpful, it's on page 947 in my Bible. That would make sense if we were using the Pew Bibles, but obviously, or the Church Bibles, but we're not. And it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, Members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. (coughs) Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, there's just a couple of things to mention before we start. The first is, 
as soon as the sermon comes to an end, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. So I want you to know that so you know the question time's coming up, so you know that, that it's there and you can be thinking of what questions you might like to ask. So that's immediately after. Um, another thing to mention is you should have received a sermon outline in your service sheet handout. Obviously, that's for you to use or abuse at your will. Um, it really isn't important, but if it's helpful, it's there for you. And then finally, and most importantly, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your servant Paul and the gift that he has given us in the letter of Romans, as well as, as other writings. And as we continue to reflect on these things, we know it's your word and that it has the ability to transform our minds and renew them. And we thank you, Lord, that as we think differently about you, it causes us to behave differently. We pray, Lord, that that would be reflected as we engage with one another, as we relate to you, and also as we reflect and relate to the world outside. Amen. So, today we arrive at Romans 12. And it's worth taking a moment to appreciate how what we have here in chapter 12 relates to everything that's come before. It's possible to divide all of Paul's letters, pretty much, into the first part which is referred to as the indicative, which means... This is what you have become. You have become children of God. You've become Christians. You are now in Christ. Those sorts of things. And then the second part of his letters refer to the imperative, which means this is what you must do. However, even at this superficial level, these two parts are related. So we might say, given what you've become, behave in this way. Or, now be what you have been made. But we can go even a little deeper than this. As Paul has outlined the gospel from Romans 1 to 11, it's provided us with a worldview. And as that worldview has changed the way we think it cannot but begin to have an effect on our behaviour. Starting right back to Romans 1, given the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord, naturally as our Lord, our desire will now be to obey him. Then we come to Romans 6, verse 13, which says this, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to, to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What we're seeing is the gospel that we've been reflecting upon throughout Romans fully anticipates a change to our behaviour. The gospel cannot be understood other than it affecting the way we think, the way we behave, 
and treat both God and one another. And so what follows from Romans 12 and onwards is going to flesh out what the change of behaviour looks like. And immediately from the start, Paul establishes the extent of the service that we're to make to God. He says, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Or as a living sacrifice. Now, rather than meaning physical body, it makes more sense to think in terms of the entire person. Given what God has done for us, it's appropriate that we dedicate our whole selves to him. And the dedication of our entirety is our spiritual worship. Now, the word worship has been dramatically reduced in Christian circles And it tends to refer to that part of the church service when the worship band performs, when we're led in worship by the worship leader, and we worship together. But the question is raised, what happens the rest of the time? Does worship end? Well, both the Hebrew and the Greek words that we often translate as worship would probably be better translated as service. In the Old Testament, the service the priest gave was complex and involved many layers of cultic sacrifice. However, in the New Testament, the sacrifice of a multitude of animals is replaced by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The reason the Old Testament sacrifices were made was so that a sinful people could serve a holy God. Had the sacrifices not been provided, the people wouldn't have been able to dwell with God. So notice what's happening. The service that takes place at the temple is a provision made so on a day-to-day basis the people can serve God without fear of being consumed. And so there's no reason to think that our worship of God should be confined to a place or a time. The sacrifice has happened. That sacrifice has been made to affect our day-to-day service. We're to serve God in our entirety, And we're to do so daily, moment by moment. Which means authentic worship takes place at the level of the mundane. It's how we think. How we drive our car. It's how we wash up. Speak to our neighbour or engage with a stranger. It's about how we love our spouse, our sibling or our housemate. It's the decisions we make. Absolutely everything we do, with, we do with the changed perspective that the gospel has had upon us, knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord over every aspect of our life. In 12.2, we see another example of how what we're reading builds upon what's come before. So have a quick look back at Romans 1, 
verse 21. It says this, For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God, or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the human outside of the gospel has futile thinking. They stand opposed to God. They're at odds with him. Far from being able to discern his will, they give the glory he deserves to parts of his creation. Whereas now we've been saved, we're not to think like the world, but our minds are to be renewed so that we think God's thoughts after him and are able to discern God's will. Having established that we're to be transformed, Paul then moves on to talking about the church community. It really is a nonsense to think that we can transform in isolation. Ultimately, if we remain in isolation, then there's no one to get along with. You know, there's nothing to do, as it were. The full extent of our transformation involves how we relate to others. This is not the transformation of the individual, but rather it has to be in the context of community that individuals will need to be transformed. And so Paul commands sober judgment. When you put people together, and that is what the church is, people together, then people begin to measure themselves against others. It could be envy at someone else's position a belief that you aren't considered as highly as you should be, even a concern that you shouldn't be here. But we have an objective standard by which we can measure ourselves, and that is the measure of faith that God has assigned us. Now, it makes most sense to understand this measure of faith as the basic Christian faith as given equally by God to all. As Douglas Moo says in his commentary, it doesn't matter who it is, everyone who's part of the community is included in the church because of the faith God has given us. And that should have a sobering effect. No one has more of a right to be here than any other. All are here as a result of the very same thing. Faith that God has given us. From that point of view, we truly are equal. Why is any one of us here as part of the church? Well, it has nothing to do with ability and it has everything to do with the faith that God has given us. And this keeps us from an overestimation of ourselves. 
this being our natural tendency. There's no reason why it can't also serve to help the member who has too low a view of him or herself. You belong here because God has chosen you and given you faith in him. Paul then goes on to explain how the church is a body and there's a unity in the body. Though a body is made up of different parts, those parts work together for one purpose. So the different contributions which each make do not introduce weakness to the community. They do not compromise the community. Rather, they're fundamental contributions to the community as a whole. It's actually rather when one part is absent that the whole is compromised. And so we're not to be jealous of one another. We're not to look down on those who we perceive to be lesser. Because this is the futile thinking of Romans 1.28 and not the product of the renewed mind we're to have. In contemporary society, when we speak of love, we're asking the question, how do you feel? Because in contemporary society, love is an emotion. However, when we read the Bible, love isn't an emotion that we're exploring. Rather, it's an action. Love always relates to what is done. And actually, that's helpful because it makes much more sense when we approach verse 9. Let love be genuine. If you don't feel love for another, how do you go about authenticating love? But if love is an action, then the question is more in the realm of how will you treat one another? What you do for the other demonstrates if your love is authentic or not. If we're jealous of one another, always putting one another down, If we always want the last word, we do not have love for one another. But if our concern is for others, then we act in a way that demonstrates a genuine love. Notice whenever you read Paul, he often has this double-sided instruction. You find it here, the second half of verse 9. Abhor what is evil... Hold fast to what is good. For Paul, it isn't enough to just say, abhor evil. You need to abhor evil, and that's the negative action. And then it must be followed with the positive action, which is to replace that, hold fast to what is good. It's what Paul speaks of elsewhere when he says we need to put off and put on. The one has to be replaced with the other. And then finally, Paul talks about how we're to behave to those outside of the community of believers. We're living in the time of grace. 
And hard behaviour, first and foremost, is to reflect the fact that by God's grace, we have become part of his people. And those outside of the church may persecute us, but the fact shouldn't cause us to compromise our commitment to our desire to live perfectly like our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father, who for the time being treats the wicked and the good the same, causing the sun to shine on both the wicked and the righteous. And since we're in this time of grace, maybe our refusal to respond to persecution with vengeance may lead to those who persecute also being brought into the kingdom. Nevertheless, our motivation comes from the fact that God will vindicate his people when the time comes. And so it's all part of a transformed mind. When we see things with God's eternal perspective, we can begin to put everything in its place. Our behaviour now, our treatment of those within the community of believers, even how we engage with the unbeliever, has eternal consequences. So let's pray that our minds would be transformed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the things that we've been able to reflect upon this morning. We thank you for the comprehensiveness of this short chapter that explains how our minds are to be renewed so they don't reflect the futile thinking of uh, the unbeliever but rather we would think your thoughts after you. We pray, Lord, that that would um, begin to take shape or continue to take shape in our minds so that our sacrifices would be in in their entirety. We would be worshipping you on a daily, moment-to-moment basis as we serve you in the mundane. And that we would engage with one another, bearing in mind that you have bought each one with your blood and also that we might be slow to take vengeance, knowing that we can be comforted in the fact that you will vindicate your people. Amen. Okay, so I mentioned uh, before we started that there will be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about this morning. That time has arrived, so any questions or comments are welcome. Yes, we've got a question. Chris. Uh, yeah. um, so you mentioned about the Lord always being an actor. 
Excellent question. Okay, so uh, just to repeat it for the recording. So we talked about how um, love isn't an emotion, but rather love is an action. So when we think biblically about love, then, do we not have to worry about emotion and do we not have to feel that love at all? Okay, there's a few things to think about with this. I think the first thing to say is, as as humans, our emotions are all over the place. So you can wake up one morning and you can feel... I mean, you could relate this to anything. You could think, relate this to God or you could relate this to your spouse. But you could kind of think in those terms of, for some reason, you've woken up in the morning and you just don't feel it. You don't feel love towards your spouse. You don't feel love towards your God, uh, to God, rather. And there's no explaining it. There's another day you can wake up and you feel particularly loving towards your spouse or, or God, depending on the scenario. And, you know, you can't put it down to which side of bed you got out of, or that's all you can put it down to, because it's just basically that sort of idea that there is no explanation. So given that, we kind of want to be looking for something a little bit more stable and a little bit more affirming. Um, and it might be helpful, we talk a little bit about this when we looked at Romans 5, where, again, that idea that we have now been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that can often be referred to as that sense of peace, that inner peace inside. But again, it just doesn't quite cut it. It's more probably thinking in terms of, particularly what it's given later on, in terms of reconciliation, as in you are at odds with God. There's complete hostility between you and God you are enemies. And so the only thing that's to resolve that is an objective peace. And so here's the thing. It's wonderful if our emotions reflect reality. That's wonderful. But we don't have to worry if our emotions don't reflect reality. And you can do that on both, in both sort of scenarios. So I know that God loves me because he sent his son to lay down his life for me. That is objective and it's there. It's reality. If I wake up in the morning and I feel a love towards him, that's wonderful. My emotions reflect reality. If I wake up in the morning and I don't feel that love towards him, or I think his love is far from me for some apparent reason because of my mixed up emotions... Well, that's a shame. It really is a shame. But don't worry, because the, objectively, the objectivity smashes that out of the water. Um, because re- the reality is, his son has laid down his life for you. So, you know, tomorrow, maybe you'll wake up and your emotions will match the reality. So we don't need to worry and you know, I think this is, this is the sort of thing where we can kind of take it a step further and start thinking in terms of, well, how can we talk ourselves down when our emotions aren't reflecting reality? You know, I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like God loves me, and I don't feel particularly loving to him. Okay, well, that's what I've got to remind myself. The, I mean, we, we, I think uh, Nathan likes to think about that whole, how many ways can we think about how God loves us? Well, he's adopted us children of God, he has laid down his life for 
uh, his, laid down the life of his son for us. He's bought us with his blood. You know, you can, you could spend uh, a day and a half, a week, working and you know, reflecting on different ways that he loves us. So yeah, I hope that's cool. Any other questions or comments? Oh, Nikki. Okay, let me just, so um, we've got this idea. Um, so the gifts are different according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if, prof, uh, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. So these things that we're all to use or how, I think, sorry, I just missed a little bit. Yes, good point. Yeah, I um, I kind of feel like this is one of those things where I think I think it, it's a helpful question because you know, like I don't think you know at the end of the service we say, okay, right, let's just get into a group. Okay, let's work out whose gift is who and which one's yours and. Oh, hang on! You're no, you've got the you're doing the wrong gift. Stop doing that because that's being done over there. Um, and I think you know if you start getting into that things, things are going to get quite clumsy. And I think as well, yeah, you do get quite reductive as well. So you're like, you know, well, do I not need to be nice to people because my gift is this, or I don't need to do that because, you know, and you, you get it sometimes where, you know, you always end up picking on musicians, don't you? Um, the musicians, they, they play the musical instruments, but then that's their lot. You know, they're kind of done for the day. And, and, um, but that's not... I think more there's a... Yeah, a kind of, we're thinking more in terms of the whole purpose, aren't we? Uh, the whole complexity of everything. So, I mean, oh, okay, one thing that might be helpful to say. Um, I heard someone once speak in terms of elders... And obviously, to be an elder, there's particular qualifications to be an elder. But the interesting thing is, is you can have the qualifications of an elder, but not be an elder. And that's simply a pragmatic thing. They just, they've already got 12 elders. They really just don't need another six. You know, so in that sense, they have the gift, but it's not being taken advantage of, simply from a pragmatic reason. Um, and... So, yeah, I do think there's a sense in that we're not to pick a gift and therefore think we can get away with murder on, in the other realms, but rather... And similarly, I mean, the gift of the, uh, the characteristic of an elder 
I mean, it just basically describes the characteristic of anyone, any Christian. That's, but it's just rather, if you're going to choose an elder, make sure they've got this characteristic, not this is the characteristic of an elder and other Christians can do what they like, as it were. So, yeah, I, I think... I think that point serves as a, you know, people doing this, people doing that, people doing the other, you know, people have got their roles, but I don't think it's uh, necessarily prescriptive. It's more just descriptive of kind of what a church looks like, I think. Time for one more. Yes, Ricky. Yeah, interesting. I do think as we work our way through the Bible, um, what you find is this complete steering away from different levels. It seems to be one of the things that we're very keen to introduce. I'm not saying this is what Ricky's trying to do. <laughs> but, the, uh, but, you know, the church in general is very keen to introduce it. So, you know, you've got, um, in the Catholic Church, you've got the saints. And they're up here and the rest of us down there. Um, you could think in terms of um, charismatic church. You've got those who've got the second blessing. You've got the rest of us who are down here. Um, but then when you actually start reading the Bible, what you find is that, you know, Paul says to all the saints... Uh, the church. He's not saying, oh, I'm writing to the saints, but not to you lower level people. Uh, and similarly, when he writes to, um, when you get the idea of second blessing, there isn't this sense where some people have got the spirit, but then there are others who've got a bit more. I mean, it, it, it just isn't there. Um, and there's a sense in the You know, we do think in terms of maturity. Um, so I guess there you want to kind of make the distinction between there's a faith that's applied to us that means we believe and we're in. Now, once you're in that level, you're basically a Christian. So we're all saints. We've all got the Spirit. We're all a Christian. You know, if you're a Christian, you've got the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. If you're a saint, you're a Christian. If you're a saint, you're sp- you've got the Spirit. If you've got the Spirit, you're a saint. You know, there is no kind of like levels of Christianity. In a similar way, if you've got faith, well, it's, it's the faith. It's the, it's the, the genuine, authentic faith. Um, 
but then I guess there's that sense in the, but then we're in the process of sanctification uh, and maturity, of which is a journey. But, you know, what's already been established is that we are in and part of it. I mean, I, I don't know, this is probably a bad thing to do, ending on a bad note. But I think we're living in a, well, I don't know whether this is true of all times, but it seems to have been quite, a, we've hit quite a low point in, particularly in the UK and maybe over in America. You know, many of our heroes who were pastors and were the mature and were the, the great ones that we look up, uh, looked up to, they've failed and fallen. Um, but here's the thing. My confidence is not in pastors. My confidence is in Christ. You know, our confidence is not in those people who taught us and we learned the word through them. Our confidence is in Christ. And I think we've said this before. Your confidence is not in me or Adrian. <sighs> you know, if and when we were to fall away, well, that's not where we want you to put your sight. Your sight, your faith, is sturdy and secure and in Christ. Now, the reason I mention that is just that idea that who is the, this elusive person with this superior faith? You know, that it seems to be the bigger they are, the harder they fall. For want of a better phrase. <laughs> I don't know. Has that answered your question? I've, I've talked a bit after your, you asked your question. Let's stop there. Um, and we'll sing our next song and then we'll have a reflection. We're going to stand to sing before the throne of God above.